Hi, my name is Kyra Roby, Policy Analyst at One Voice. Welcome to our Mississippi Speaks Facebook conversation series. This series is sponsored by One Voice and the Mississippi State Conference NAACP. Nishambi Lambright is the Executive Director of One Voice. Corey Wiggins is the Executive Director of the Mississippi State Conference NAACP. And Reverend Robert James is the State President of the Mississippi State Conference NAACP. Thank you so much to our sponsors for sponsoring this event. I hope that everyone enjoys the conversation. The topic of this month's series is, let's talk about it, 2021 Legislative Review. Now that the 2021 legislative session is over, we just want to take a moment or this opportunity to debrief and review what happened during the legislative session and also what did not happen during the 2021 legislative session. So we have a great um, we have great panelists here today to talk about this issue. And I just really hope that you just take time to enjoy this conversation. Um, and I'll take a moment just to introduce our panelists before we begin. First, we have um, Senator Angela Turner Ford. Senator Turner Ford represents Senate District 16. We also have Brandon Jones, who is the Executive Director of the Southern Poverty Law Center, Jackson, Mississippi office. And last but certainly not least, we have Alicia Netherville, who is the Deputy Director of the American Civil Liberties Union, Mississippi office. Thank you so much to our panelists for being here today. And um, I know we have a lot to discuss, so let's go ahead and get started. I'd like to talk first um, to Senator Angela Turner Ford. Senator Turner Ford, can you just kind of describe the 2021 legislative session generally? I know I've seen news reports about this um, session being one that may be remembered more for what did not happen as opposed to what did happen. What are some of the generally like highs and lows of this legislative session? How would you characterize it? First of all, thank you for the opportunity to be on the show today. And um, one, one bill that came up on multiple occasions before the Senate was that of um, the issue of medical marijuana. And um, it was not taken up finally by the House. Um, I think that's one of the issues that we can say that we did not address, even though there were goals of trying to get it to the finish line. Um, there were also some criminal justice pieces that I would have liked to see you know, passed and um, forwarded onto the governor's desk. There are some that were advanced, but I would like to have seen more. Um, again, it's just uh, restoration of suffrage rights. Um, that's an issue that was important to me as well as members of the Mississippi Legislative Black Caucus. Those issues didn't make it across the finish line either. So there were just a number of trailing issues that we wanted to see gain momentum, but they did not. And um, again, we just continue to fight and we live to fight another day. We're talking about that because I know that's something that um, the legislator has kind of, or the legislator's did towards the end of the session. Um, Mississippi has one of the highest incarceration rates in the nation. We have become one of the nation's leaders in incarceration because of punitive sentencing and parole eligibility laws. So Alicia, can you talk a little bit about what did and did not happen um, in terms of criminal justice reform uh, this past legislative session? Were there any bills that did not pass that we think should have? Sure. Uh, well, in terms of criminal justice reform that did not happen, we did not get any reform on either our small habitual offender offender bills or our 
big habitual life with no parole, habitual sentencing. So that was unfortunate. We did have some parole reforms, but um, we take the position that the parole reforms did not go far enough. And also um, disproportionately impacts up to 62% of the black incarcerated persons because the restrictions and are tougher on crimes that black people are are generally incarcerated for. So there could have definitely been more done in terms of reducing the prison population. Um, also in terms of criminal justice reform, we saw attempts to create new felonies and also attempts to use incarcerated persons as revenue generators instead of implementing and giving them real rehabilitation and re-entry into society. So those are some things that did happen that could have been expanded and um, some things that we were able to prevent from happening. And Brandon, would you like to add um, anything to the criminal justice talk? Well, thanks for having me. And um, look, as I look at the three of you, I just want to start out by saying I have tremendous gratitude for each of you for the job you did this session. Senator Turner Ford, um, it is a tough place to serve in the legislature when you're interested in moving the ball forward in progressive ways. And so uh, the work that you and your colleagues were able to do in the Senate to uh, stop some bad ideas and then to advance some good ones that were not easy to advance. Um, I'm just very appreciative of that hard work, know how difficult it is. And uh, look, Kyra and Alicia, both of you um, helped to stop some things that needed to be stopped. And so thanks for your leadership in that space. I didn't want to get started without saying that, but I think Alicia said it exactly right. We thought last year with the passage of Senate Bill 2123 that we were on the cusp of major transformative criminal justice reform. I think each of us would agree that in Mississippi, we have a major over-incarceration problem, and that has extreme financial implications for our state. It has extreme, um, we believe, moral and community implications for our state. And uh, we had a chance last year to pass an important bill that would have given parole opportunities to thousands of people who are incarcerated that currently have no uh, prospect for parole and no incentive to um, invest in rehabilitation programs and to um, look towards the future with any hope. Unfortunately, the governor vetoed that. Rather than picking up with something very close to that legislation, um, we, we kind of began the session by um, negotiating off the back foot and I think gave way too much space to the pro-incarceration crowd and ended up um, not, not getting to a place where uh, we had hoped. That's uh, you know unfortunate because there are people like Senator Turner Ford and others who worked mightily to, to, for a different outcome. Um, but I think we have to admit um, it was not the year we had hoped for in terms of decarceration. And that's, that's unfortunate because each year that passes is a missed opportunity and uh, another opportunity lost to give thousands of people hope. Right, and so Mississippi is currently ranked third in terms of uh, incarceration rates in the state, well, in the nation. And so we know that de-incarceration is such a big issue. Um, we, we didn't see movement on that, but were there any good bills that came out in terms of criminal justice reform that we can take as a win? Yeah, there, there is, I think. Um, 
there's there's a bill that was passed that um, raises the minimum age for secured attention. And and this is a bill that has, has been a priority for many of us for several years. This, this legislation has passed one chamber or the other, but not quite made it to the finish line. This year it did pass. And, and what that means is um, under current law, children uh, as, as low as 10 years old could be subject to secure confinement in a juvenile justice facility. Uh, this raises that age to 12 years old. Um, and so we know that, uh, you know, children under that age are just beginning to develop in terms of their mental capacity, in terms of their decision making. And we know that children who are confined at an early age tend to have a harder problem finding their way outside of the system. And so we thankfully this year joined other states in raising the minimum age for secured attention to 12 years old, which was important. Uh, my friend Alicia worked mightily on a jail census data bill, which for the first time in many years uh, got the support of the Sheriff's Association, as well as other um, conservative groups in this space. Um, and unfortunately, it just kind of fell apart right there at the end. But that, that was a bill that came very close. And, 20, and Senate Bill 2759, I think we've already referenced that, but it is a modest parole bill, which does offer additional parole opportunities for people who do not have them now. Um, it, it lowers the age, uh, it lowers the term of service for people um, of nonviolent crimes to be able to have uh, a parole hearing. And um, there's a there's a little bit of parole opportunity there for, for other people. Uh, inmates. So it, you know, we, we, we feel like it's a modest opportunity, um, but not quite as far as we would hope. That's definitely good to know. Alicia, let's talk a little bit too more about some of the good things that happened. Were there any other good deals that you all tracked? Yes, there, there were um, two good bills that I want to talk about. Um, House Bill 196 created the dignity for incarcerated women. Um, as we know, in part, the in, women are the fastest growing population of incarceration right now. And when women are incarcerated, they're pretty much thrust into an environment and a, and a system built for men. Um, and oftentimes the needs of women when they are incarcerated are overlooked, including when they are pregnant. Um, so what House Bill 196 does is prohibits the use of restraints while while women are incarcerated and pregnant. And also it prohibits the use of restraints when they are given childbirth. And, and I guess that's just common sense that goes without saying, even though we have a practice of doing that um, in our prisons. Um, it also provides counseling and therapy to women while they are incarcerated and pregnant. And it re requires that a mother is able to spend at least 72 hours with her newborn baby and that she is also placed within a certain proximity of her children and it expands the visitation rights of mothers and children. So that's very significant because women rarely, incarcerated women rarely speak out in terms of their rights in, of being incarcerated and then their issues are very private and personal issues that they may not want to speak out against. So th this is a huge win for um, the dignity um, of incarcerated women. So we're very happy about that one. Um, also, we have House Bill 747. That's a little complicated. I mean, we're, we're celebrating it, but it's a little complicated how we got to the path of, of being able to celebrate it. So the original version of House Bill 747 was supported by 
um, sheriffs and some entities that wanted to do re-entry in Mississippi. So it was couched as a re-entry um, bill. And so every everybody sees re-entry and think re-entry is a great thing. But when we looked, took a closer look at the bill, we realized that that bill was actually trying to revive um, Mississippi's 1800, late 1800s practice of convict leasing, um, modern day pre uh, slavery and sharecropping. So the bill would in essence have allowed 82 sheriffs across the county, across Mississippi to work with courts to sentence people who would ordinarily go to parchment to work programs um, about by the sheriffs or by these unknown program administrators and the incarcerated persons would work for the private sector and actually turn over their wages to the program directors and the sheriffs only to receive their checks or their income or what they had earned at the end of their incarceration provided that anything was left after the sheriff and these programs deducted whatever fees, fines, and costs associated with their work as the sheriff saw fit. So um, because everybody else was really um, working very, very hard on the big reform bills, we thought that the best use of, best use of ACLU's time was to support our other advocates by, by looking at crimes that would have created additional felonies that would have actually been counterproductive to um, the overall goal of, of decarceration. So I reached out to Brandon and I was like, Brandon, I don't know how I feel about this bill. Um, we need to take a look at this. So we pulled together a smaller group of advocates and um, we basically called the bill what it was. And then we had advocate proponents of the bill reach out to us to meet with us to, to, to work the bill out to where it would not result in convict leasing and, and modern day slavery. So what we have now with 747 is a one-year pilot project with the sheriff in Rankin County. Um, no more than 25 incarcerated persons can participate. They will open their own bank accounts and manage their own money, um, pay their own fines and restitution. And um, after a year, the peer, peer will come in and do a study of the pilot project. So uh, we were happy that we were able to avert this practice of, uh, across 82 counties and now we, we have a model to study and hopefully that model will be real re-entry that we can um, work together in coalition to expand across the state. So it's good to know that, you know, there were some good things that happened in terms of criminal justice reform, um, whether it was, you know, uh, making sure that things did not pass or just celebrating the small wins that we can. Senator Turner Ford, earlier you mentioned felony disenfranchisement as well. And so that's something that we know that um, definitely one voice in the Mississippi State Conference NAACP is interested in, particularly in terms of, you know, just uh, voting rights rest restoration. Can you talk about what happened during this legislative session um, with that, with any of these bills? Thank you. First, let me start by saying that there were a number of bills that were filed um, that related to, to voting. Um, there were efforts to try to um, create, I guess, no excuse, no excuse early voting here in the state of Mississippi. Um, some bills call for 10 days, 21 days, multiple bills fought, filed by multiple legislators. Then there were suffrage bills, which were, I would say, individual bills that would have been filed on a person's behalf who had been disenfranchised as a result of a felony conviction. 
Um, those individuals have been released from incarceration. They have re-entered society and made connection with the legislator to get a bill filed. I believe that there were 30 bills that were sent over from the House of Representatives over to the Senate. And of those 30 that were sent, there were only two that were taken up in committee and actually passed on the floor. Um, in the alternative, there were five bills that were actually filed on behalf of senators that um, were assigned to the Judiciary B Committee. None of those bills were placed on the agenda for consideration by committee members. So I, I introduced one, I think one of my colleagues introduced two, and another two senators introduced one each. Those bills were not deliberated in any form. They died in committee, and as a result, those people will not have the prospect of have the, having their voting rights restored. That's a problem. And um, when the decision was made that those bills would not be brought up for consideration by the Judiciary B Committee, we were told that there was some sort of screen process and um, the criteria were not met for those bills to be considered uh, by committee members. That's arbitrary. And um, I think that if we're going to operate within these parameters, people need to know what the rules are ahead of time. We need to be consistent. But most importantly, if a person has paid his or her debt to society, um, they're, they're working, they're functioning, they should have the right to vote restored. And that's something that we will continue to work for. So not enough of a gain on, on the issue of restoration of voting rights, minimal progress, but what is also alarming would be two bills that did make it out of the House and the Senate. And one of them was a bill that would have allowed um, voters to be purged if they had not voted in a number of years and received a notification card um, that would have been sent by their circuit clerk's office. And if they did not respond, then they would have been purged from the roll. And then there was another bill that proposed if and if there was evidence, quote unquote, that a person was not a, a United States citizen, he or she could be purged if they did not come forward with that proof. These are, by their very nature, bills that have been introduced to suppress the vote. And I'm glad that they did not come out of the House and the Senate and go onto the governor's desk. But I don't, I don't expect that this will be the last time that we will see them. So I think that we must um, remain on guard, continue to look at these bills going forward because there are going to be more of them. And yes, I have a couple more questions about these voting bills because we've, we've seen this kind of play out, um, I think as you mentioned before, across the country. I, I wanted to go a little bit back just again to criminal justice reform. Can you explain that suffrage process for us just for our view viewing audience? Yes, um, sure. If a person is convicted of certain felonies, it's not all felonies, um, they are they lose their right to vote. And the process currently is if you are disenfranchised or you lose your right to vote, you have to actually reach out to a senator or member of the House of Representatives, get a bill introduced. The bill is assigned to a committee, typically judi the Judiciary B committees in the House and in the Senate. It's then up to the prerogative of the chairman of that committee to place the bill on the agenda. And once it's placed on the agenda, provided you make you reach or jump that hurdle, 
then the committee will decide if that person's person should have his or her right to vote restored. And from there, the bill has to be placed on the calendar to be debated or deliberated by the entire body, whether it be the Senate or the House. And then those bills have to go over to the opposing chamber, assigned to a committee and go through the same process. Typically what you see, if the bill makes it through the House committee, House floor, Senate committee and Senate floor, then it goes onto the governor's desk for signature. Typically the governor does not sign those, but they, uh, they become law just by operation of statute. And um, I have not seen, I think maybe on occasion, one or two has been vetoed in the past, but usually they just um, are due back from the governor. They're not signed and that those people get their rights restored. But that's the, the process that an individual has to go through um, if, he, if he or she has been disenfranchised based on a felony conviction. Thank you so much for explaining that to us because I know, you know, I don't, I don't think we talk enough about that <laughs> and, um, when we're talking about voting rights. And so, you know, that's again, definitely something that um, we're working on and that we're interested in. Before I get um, comments from our other panelists on this, this same topic of voting rights, I, I do want to mention that um, I know that the Mississippi Legislative Black Caucus issued a statement about Georgia's voting law recently. What can we do to ensure that Mississippi kind of doesn't end up in the same place? I would say that we're, we're already starting behind. Georgia at least has early voting, and we don't have that here in the state of Mississippi. Um, but it, as you mentioned in your, your comments um, when you posed the question to me, Republican election reform is sweeping the country. And um, not only do individuals have members in the Mississippi Legislative Black Caucus that are adv advocating on their behalf, they need to also make sure that they reach out and establish contact with the senator or the representative that represents his or her district. And if that's the case, if there is a bill that's going through the process that you know is likely to oppress or suppress the vote, reach out to that person and let them know that you're opposed to that legislation passing and uh, making sure that your voice is heard. I think as a member of the legislature and as a member of the chair of the Mississippi Legislative Black Caucus, we need to do more to make sure that people are aware that these bills are moving through the process. I'm not sure what kind of alarm was sound in Georgia, um, but the you know all we've heard is the press as the bill has made it across the finish line and was actually signed by the governor. But certainly, I think that there are signals and warnings that we can provide um, before those bills are actually signed into law. And that's what we have to be vigilant to do. And now we'll take a commercial break. Elections aren't about the candidates. They're about you. You can have a say in what happens in your city, your community, your family. You have a personal stake in the upcoming elections. In this year's elections, the municipal races are on the ballot. The people who make decisions for your city or town is determined by your vote. Remember, your vote is your voice. Cast your ballot and let your voice be heard. To learn more about the upcoming municipal elections, visit OneVoiceMS.org. The Our Voice, Our Votes report centers the lives of those who have been directly impacted by Mississippi's criminal legal system. The report itself is an interrogation of our processes and a challenge to not only reevaluate those processes, but to change them and to make those changes clear and accessible. This report is the blueprint for expanding voting access in Mississippi. 
a roadmap to restoration and justice. Join us because at the launching of this report, the real work begins. So um, Senator Turner Ford mentioned that Mississippi doesn't have uh, early voting. We also know that our voting rights here in the state um, is a very much a primary focus of One Voice and the NAACP's work. Mississippi has some of the most restrictive voting laws in the country. We don't have online or same day voter registration. We don't have universal early voting and over 230 Mississippians currently cannot vote because of felony disenfranchisement laws. Um, Senator Turner Ford mentioned some of the, the voting rights activity that occurred during this legislative session. Brandon, is there anything else that you'd like to add about some of the bills that were introduced or that were not introduced that should have been? Considered? Yeah. Sure, uh, and Senator Turner Ford spoke to the, the really um, scary ones that, that, that actually made it through committee, those voter purging bills. Um, but kind of to show you the extent to which some people in power will go to try to suppress the vote, even in a state like Mississippi, where we do have some of the most, I would say the most restrictive voting laws in the country, there are still things you can do to make that process even harder. And so what we saw filed this year were increased penalties for voter fraud, which we all know is um, a red herring. We do not see um, significant uh, findings of voter fraud here or elsewhere throughout the country. Um, so we paid attention to a bill that was filed on that subject. You had a kind of a reactionary bill following the national election um, last year that would have prohibited the release of the popular vote until state electors meet, which I think um, sort of speaks exactly to some of the post-federal election shenanigans that we saw pulled uh, in various states. Um, as you heard Senator Turner Ford mention, there were purg purging bills. There were two that made it out, but there were seven that were filed overall. So there was quite a few of those ideas in circulation. Um, we also saw bills that would have reduced the length of time to confirm an affidavit ballot and bills that would have uh, put redistricting for other for things other than uh, the legislature and uh, federal congressional seats with the legislature, such as school board redistricting, which is problematic for groups like ours because we don't tend to agree with uh, where our current leadership goes when it has the power of the pen to redistrict. And then we had uh, a proposal to even make our restrictive voter ID law more restrictive and limit it to a driver's license only, which would take away um, the free card that people have access to currently under existing law that enables them to get an ID even if the um, even if they don't have one otherwise. Um, but of course, I guess on the good news side, Kyra, there were many more positive bills that would have expanded voting than there were negative bills. Uh, you heard Senator Turner Ford mention early voting. There were uh, those were in the double digits. There were ten early voting bills. Um, there was several bills that would have expanded um, absentee voting, uh, you know, to include certain groups that aren't currently included, like offshore workers, um, college students. There were a lot of bills about college students and improving absentee voting for college students. We all know how onerous it is to get two uh, notaries to sign off on a uh, an absentee ballot. Now, it's especially difficult when a college student 
is a way, sometimes for the first time in a new community, to have to go through that process of getting two notaries. It, it was especially difficult during a pandemic. So you saw legislation that would have made voting easier for college students that was modeled after some of what exists in other states. Um, several motor voter bills, which is common, you know, actually came came to be known during the 80s where people uh, in other states are able to automatically be registered to vote upon uh, getting their driver's license. Um, and again, you heard about no excuse absentee voting, but I did want to mention this. We talked about restoration of rights and you heard how in Mississippi, that's a matter of who someone knows because it takes a two thirds vote of the legislature or it takes the governor taking some extraordinary action I thought it's notable that of all the bills filed that dealt with voting last year, the overwhelming uh, leader in the clubhouse on number of bills filed on a single subject was restoration of rights. 22 bills were filed about restoring rights to people who have served their debt to society. And so I think that tells us that there is significant community and legislative interest in this issue and it's an absolute tragedy that not only were none of these bills brought forward for consideration, there wasn't even a hearing on this subject. Um, and so we're going to join Senator Turner Ford and others to try to bring that issue into greater view because it's clear that people are recognizing how unfair our current law is and you know want to see change in that area. That's definitely good news and good to, good to hear from us. Alicia, was there anything in particular that the ACLU was looking at or, or working on or paying attention to this past legislative session around voting rights? And then um, we'll move on to a different topic. Yes, we were um, basically looking at the same thing as SPLC and working in coalition with SPLC and other community partners around voting. So we definitely supported and worked hard to try to get the positive bills out of committee, which did not happen. And we worked aggressively with SPLC and other advocates to make sure that House Bill 4 um, and the, the Senate bill and the immigrant bill, a voter purging bill did not come out. Because one thing about those bills is what be, would have been that an individual would show up at the poll and not be able to vote. And, and there would be no affidavit voting. So we were we took you know we understood the seriousness of that seriousness seriousness of that and worked very hard to get those bills killed but as the senator said we expect those bills to be back um and we don't expect them them to let up on those bills um i, I do want to say about the current suffrage process is that is voter suppression in itself so um, as brandon said there were a number of bills that came out that would actually make it much easier for a person to have their rights restored when they leave incarceration and, and pay their debt to society. And I think what the message that we need to convey to people is that just because someone, I can't think of a crime that someone could commit that would impair their ability to determine who they want to represent them and the issues that impact them and their communities. Um, indeed, they will probably be the ones who will be able to do that better because they are impacted people. So just as we're out educating people in the community, we, you know, um, some pushback on the disenfranchisement of voting rights altogether will probably be on our agenda. 
That's definitely something that we'll all continue to pay attention to. There's something, another big topic that will kind of continue, I expect, uh, beyond the 2021 legislative session, but I want to talk about health care. So access to health care has always been an issue in Mississippi. Mississippi ranks in top five states with the highest uninsured rates. Senator Turner Ford, was there any movement um, this past legislative session to improve Mississippi's health care system at all? I know earlier you mentioned um, about um, not being able to adequately address medical marijuana, but were there was there anything else going on this legislative session that we should know about? Uh, yes, Kyra. I, the Medi Medicaid tech bill was um, a huge issue this session, and we basically started working with that early on in the process. There were some hearings that took place during the fall. One issue in particular, though, um, that, that was of importance to me, and it was actually one of our agenda items, We, well, one would be we wanted to expand Medicaid to capture those individuals who are basically classified as the working poor. But in addition to that, we wanted um, women or mothers who are receiving Medicaid and who've given birth, we wanted those postpartum services extended beyond 60 days to 12 months. And um, that was something that we enjoined the chairman on in the House and the Senate for the Medicaid committees. Um, we talked with this, talked with this, um, talked to them about this issue on more than one occasion, and had a a pretty good sense that um, that issue was going to make it and be a part of the final Medicaid bill. But you know, lo and behold, once we got to the final weeks of the session, we were told that it was not included, and um, that's something that we've been working on for more than one year. Um, thought that we would have some success this time. But anytime I would say more of the conservative members of the legislature hear the words Medicaid, and if there's to be any type of increase um, with who's supposed to receive those services, they correlate that to be the expansion of Medicaid. And it, it's basically a no-go at that point, which is really unfortunate. Um, I think it's a harsh attitude to have towards the citizens of Mississippi who need Medicaid, who need health care. Um, we have to work on getting them access, getting our citizens access. A healthy Mississippi is going to be more productive for all of us. This is an issue where you know the medical community is reaching out now and they're saying that we need to expand Medicaid, even to the point that they're willing to call it something else. But I just believe in being true to the reason that we're sent to the Capitol we're there, we're sent there to help. And there are citizens across the state who need adequate access to healthcare. And that's something that we have to work on. So it did not receive the attention that it should have. And uh, we'll just have to continue to press. It's kind of like the story with a lot of issues that we face. Um, we're, we're the advocates, we're pushing, and um, we'll just have to continue to do that. Right now, I want to bring it back to you on this idea of Medicaid expansion, because again, Senator Turner Ford mentioned that, you know, there's kind of adamant op opposition to Medicaid expansion in Mississippi. But just again, just for the sake of the conversation and making sure we kind of touch on everything, can you just kind of explain again why it's so important and why that's something that may have been a disappointment to some during this legislative session? Sure. You know, I, I think the voices of opposition are sort of outsized to where the public actually is on this issue. So we have some really loud very powerful politicians in Mississippi who continue to be vocally 
negative about the idea. But I think an overwhelming number of Mississippians, once they understand the concept, appreciate the value of the program. And it's worth, you know, going back a little bit in time to 2010 when the Affordable Care Act passed. And with the Affordable Care Act came this opportunity for states like Mississippi to expand their population of people who could be covered under a federal health care plan up to about 140 percent of the um, of, of the poverty level. And so what this meant was unlocking health care for millions of people across the country who didn't have access to health care through their jobs or otherwise. And so this was a game changer for many states. And in the intervening years, we have seen states all across the political spectrum embrace this concept, including Indiana, where former Vice President Mike Pence was governor, including states like Arkansas, um, which, you know, is very similar to Mississippi in terms of the way that they approach, um, you know, some of their politics. And, you know, recently we saw a, a ballot initiative pass, pass in Missouri, which is uh, also very similarly situated. So we've seen state after state, including some ruby red conservative states, warm up to this idea. Um, and I think it's notable, Kyra, that during our 2020 election, we heard from uh, two of the three Republican gubernatorial candidates who voiced support of Medicaid expansion. And so um, what this program would mean would mean a huge injection of resources into our medical program. It would make it far less likely that rural hospitals would have to face closure. It would mean that Mississippians could stop using uh, an emergency room as their primary care doctor. It would mean uh, people getting preventative care regardless of their socioeconomic status, so that they could have checkups and they could get out in front of health problems before they rose to crisis level. And it would mean that, um, you know, people who are working hard, who are working multiple jobs, who might happen not to have an employer that, you know, provides it currently, or, or maybe it's just not enough, to not have that as an impediment anymore. Um, and so it would be just a tremendous thing, both in terms of our healthcare infrastructure in this state, so that we would have fewer zones where people just don't have access to care, and then just have so many more people who are getting the type of care that we should expect out of a modern country in the 21st century. Um, and so by the legislature's obstinance, and by their failure to act, and by their decision to continue to take their cues from these outspoken reactionary folks who are just denying and outright lying about the financial benefit of expansion, I think you're going to see more community-oriented uh, work in this area. And, and we know because it was subject of a um, recent ballot initiative filing, and it's been in conversation um, in, our, in some of our local news outlets, I think this is going to be a place where you see um, a ballot initiative um, as, as early as this year, um, because it just makes no sense for the poorest country, for the poorest state in the country to not have this program, which helps so many people. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention in the uh, federal legislation that was just recently passed, um, the there was a huge aspect of that bill 
that allow states like Mississippi, who didn't expand in the aftermath of the Affordable Care Act, to expand now and to get the full benefit, but even more than what those states did that expanded back in 2010. Um, what is now law is that for states who expand for the first three years of their expansion, they don't even have to put up any matching funds in order to have the full benefit of Medicaid expansion. Um, newly minted Senator Warnock has a lot to do with that, as does Senator Ossoff of Georgia. Um, they pushed for that. Before them, Senator Doug Jones, um, the Senate delegation from Virginia. So a lot of Southern states who recognize that their local governments have been obstinate have been going to great lengths to try to figure out how do we make this enticing to Republican states who have refused to expand. Um, and I'm optimistic that Tate Reeves won't have the last word on this. He's When I talk about reactionary politicians, Governor Reeves is at the top of that list. I am hopeful that um, over there in Senator Turner Ford's part of the legislative chamber, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman can help be a leader on this. It's something that he talked about during his campaign. He knows it makes sense. He knows that people are dying every day in Mississippi because of lack of affordable access to health care. He knows that our hospitals are in a very precarious position without having this in, you know, influx of cash to help prop up the medical infrastructure in Mississippi. So I'm hopeful that we're about to have an opportunity to take this to, to the people and that we'll have some, you know, brave Republicans that join that effort. Thank you so much, Brandon, for explaining all of that to us. Um, I know we've covered so much already and we'll have to wrap up soon, but I wanted to talk about one more thing that did not happen during this past legislative session that was really a big deal and something that um, we at One Voice worked on um, throughout the session, and that was House Bill 1439, which was uh, the big tax bill. Senator Turner Ford, can you just explain what happened with that bill, and um, particularly in terms of uh, proposals to eliminate the state income tax? Why is that such a big topic, um, and, and what would it mean if that were to happen? The House Bill 1439 was not actually debated in the Senate. I had an opportunity to pull the bill, which was quite voluminous, and um, I, I can't even rem remember the amount of pages that it consisted of. But when it was presented in the House, um, one of the complaints that we started hearing in the media, as well as from our representative colleagues, was that the bill was so lengthy um, that they did not have an opportunity to read it and to study it and to, to actually get a full understanding of what all um, it would accomplish if passed. And so then I think there was another attempt to actually insert that language in another piece of legislation. Well, by the time that it made it to, to the Senate, we started watching the agenda for um, the Finance Committee. I'm not a member of that committee, but we knew that that committee would be meeting and would have to take up the bill and ultimately what came about was, I think it was actually a resolution that came out of the rules committee where a study committee was created to study tax reform for the state of Mississippi. Now, I, I thought that that was a, a great approach to tackling such a huge issue because even though the, the overarching theme of the bill was that it was going to eliminate income tax, for various groups, it was also going to increase taxes 
in a number of different areas. And um, for those families or individuals who may not be paying income tax just due to the amount of money that they earn, they were going to be taxed in other ways um, based on what they consumed, whether it be by, by virtue of purchasing products, um, mobile homes, um, usage of, of roads and all of these sorts of things. It was just many, it was that there were many sections of the tax code that were um, brought into that bill. And so I would say that it was a broad sweeping comprehensive piece of legislation. I, for one, appreciate the opportunity for that process to have been slowed down so that we can get a, a working knowledge of what was proposed to be changed and to present some alternatives. Um, we've already discussed the access that Mississippians have to health care. You know, we have people here who are poor. Um, they're struggling to make ends meet. And we're not and certainly, you know, we're, we haven't even cleared the global pandemic that has affected us in huge ways in terms of um, our health and economic issues, why would we come forward at this point with a tax increase? So I it's, it's, I don't want to say that I've studied it in depth because I haven't, and um, but I know that I did not have an opportunity to, but going forward, that's something that I intend to do if there's to be any type of proposal considered in the future. Well, that actually kind of brings us to a, a, a close pretty nicely because I will say for us, especially well, at One Voice, and for me, that is um, definitely something that we'll continue to look at um, past the, the 2021 legislative session is this idea of eliminating the state income tax and who um, that particular proposal actually helps and who that harms in the state of Mississippi. And we have some materials on it um, now that um, we hope that you've seen, or if not, we can definitely share that that with you. And so that's definitely for, I know for me, something that I'll continue to pay attention to after this um, legislative session. And so I'll just close out by asking each of our panelists the same question. What is something or a particular issue or matter that you will continue to pay attention to um, after this legislative session? And how can community members stay engaged in the legislative process um, after the session is over, now that it's over? Senator Turner Ford, we'll go with you first. Um, we have a, 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 a legislative website, and that site is www.legislature.ms.gov. And that's actually the site that I use as I am on the floor, studying at home, listening to the debates. You can track bills live time, or as I would say, in real time. You can track bills in real time um, as they're moving through the process. Also, um, our committee meetings, as well as debate on the floor, all of these sessions are being live streamed on YouTube. So that's certainly a, a way that individuals can have a greater understanding and the opportunity to see what we do on a daily basis. We have email. I certainly check mine and um, respond to those that I can. There's also the opportunity of reaching out to legislators by telephone. We have technology at our disposal. We may as well use it. Make sure that our representatives, um, those who, who serve us in state leadership, are aware of our positions. Express your opinion. We are serving in government but we also must serve the people. And there are those who take that matter 
to heart. Reach out to us and let us know what you think and how you feel about these policies. Alicia, same question. Is there anything that we or any particular matter that we have discussed or that we didn't get a chance to that we should pay attention to now that the legislative session is over? Well, we're, we're about to move into now our grassroots organizing on all of the policy issues that we worked on, on criminal justice, in particular reentry, um, voting rights, um, and our LGBTQ work. We didn't mention the, the horrible bill that was passed out of the Senate to discriminate against um, transgender girls, um, prohibiting them from participating in girls sports. Um, so we're we're working on that, um, following the implementation of that law and also providing a place for transgender youth to tell their stories and to combat the attempts to dehumanize them. So we approach everything from a three-pronged method from policy change, um, community engagement, and legis and I'm sorry, and litigation. Um, so we'll, we will continue to work on these issues in, in the community and also try to engage impacted persons um, to, to get engaged in our work. And we can be reached on our website, um, social media, and we will be out in the community working with our partner organizations to bring people into our work. Thanks so much for lifting it up and particularly lifting up the transgender bill so that we are aware about that as well. Brandon, what, what about you now that the legislative session is over? What are some um, matters that we should continue to pay attention to? Um, or is there anything that we missed during this or we didn't get a chance to talk about during this wonderful conversation? Well, thanks again for hosting this, uh, both to One Voice and NAACP and for the wonderful work that you all are doing in Mississippi. Uh, we can't let Kyra get out of this conversation without noting that uh, those of us who are in coalition together here um, as nonprofit organizations trying to help move Mississippi forward tapped Kyra as our leader on developing messaging and data around the uh, income tax phase out plan that we were just talking about. And so, Kyra, um, thank you so much for putting together talking points, data points, presentations, press conferences to help educate people in the community and educate legislators on the problematic parts of that proposal and, and how uh, difficult it would be for Mississippi to absorb um, that type of, of change in its resources. So thank you, Kyra. And um, as we look ahead to next year, I think that it's smart of us to reflect on what came close this year. And that has to go you know, that has to do both with good legislation that we thought was almost there but didn't quite make it um, and to things um, that were negative that we, we can expect to see again. And so I am thinking about this income tax proposal, and I think we have not heard the last of that. You heard Senator Turner Ford say earlier, we must be vigilant on voting rights legislation, and we cannot afford to take a step back in Mississippi we uh, heard from our Secretary of State this week who said some very alarming things about expanding voting rights. We should take that as a warning sign that people's voting rights are on the menu under, with this current leadership in Mississippi. And so we're gonna have to be strong in the legislature and throughout the state to make sure that we do not take a step back. Mississippi has a awful history um, and a racist history when it comes to how we um, you know, honor that sacred right of voting. And so we're gonna to have to pay attention to that. But we also had some things that came close that were positive in nature, like you know expanding parole. And you can bet that Alicia and I are gonna be thinking a lot about that 
Um, and look, I think all of us, all of us on this call and so many of our friends who care about these issues are thinking about how we elevate impacted voices in these discussions, whether it be about reentry, whether it be about, you know, anti-trans bills. Um, we need to find those people who are closest to these issues to tell their story, uh, both to educate the public and to make a record, but also to make sure that legislators know the full impact of the decisions they make and the lives that they affect. So thanks again for the conversation and looking forward to continuing our work together. Thanks so much. Senator Turner Ford, you have the last word. Thank you, Kyra. And I too am thankful for this opportunity to get on the call and to share this space with all of you. One thing that we've done, and we've done this for the past few years, um, we want to make sure that as a caucus, the Mississippi Legislative Black Caucus, that we are presenting an agenda that reflects the needs of the people. And we're about to go into the phase of the process where we're, we're hearing from advocacy groups, um, we're hearing from concerned citizens, individuals in, in the community who have an, an issue that they want the legislature to address. Regardless of how successful it is or not, we want to give voice to the concerns of the people. So to the extent that you all are willing to reach out to us, present issues, we will take those issues. We will correspond with our policy advocates, introduce bills, and try to work those bills and move them through the process. That's why we're there. So again, thank you for the opportunity. We want to make sure that we address the needs of our citizenry, and we want to make sure that we get those bills across the finish line and to the governor's desk to the extent that we can. So thank you. Well, I could just talk about all this stuff all day, but I know that's not what we're here to do. So thank you so much to our wonderful panelists, Senator Angela Turner Ford, um, Brandon Jones and Alicia Netterville. Thank you to uh, your respective organizations as well. And a special thank you to our sponsors again, One Voice in the Mississippi State Conference NAACP for sponsoring this, uh, this series. We really hope that you enjoyed um, this conversation and that you learned a little bit more about what happened during this 2021 legislative session that you may not have known that you um, were pleased with the review um, and that we know that it was comprehensive, but we know that there's still so much more to work on and that all of our organizations respectively will continue to uplift a lot of these issues that we discussed today. So thank you again. We hope you enjoyed it and enjoy your day.